Hello and welcome to the Michigan Murders. I'm Laura. And I'm Stephanie. I don't even know how I don't we... know why I always say it like that. And, that's and I'm Stephanie. That's <laughs> reflex now, I think. That's just <laughs> I think it is at that's this point. how we sound. And yeah, I don't know if we want to give this uh notice at the beginning or the end, but we're gonna start doing these podcasts every other week. Um it's cause we have lives. <laughs> we're busy correct <laughs> and we don't get paid for this so no <laughs> this is for so fun we need a little breaks <laughs> yeah just so we don't get burnt out because that's kind of where i've been at slightly yeah burnt out, but. no i completely understand it's why i've been having a hard time with scripts sometimes because school full-time single mother work all weekend and then I'm like, okay, I got to find a time when I'm not doing book work, school work, exams to write a script on top of cutting hair and then going to work. And I'm like, I am going to cry. <laughs> yeah, it's impossible. We need that, that extra week buffer mm-hmm. in there. Absolutely. <laughs> and then, yeah, for me, editing too. It sometimes takes a while. Oh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So yes, everybody, every <laughs> other weekend, we may start streaming like a video here and there of just us being moms on our other mom podcast. But we're not sure yet. We might get to that if we find a way. <laughs> Otherwise. <laughs> yeah. Alrighty. And I think I'm first this week. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think we thought you were first the last two weeks, if I remember right, (laughs) listening to it, because I always listen to it, just like you guys. (laughs) So I have The Trial of Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. Now, there is one name in here that I'm going to really butcher, so sorry about that, but in 1924, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb were teens and living in a wealthy area of Chicago when they were both arrested for murder. Richard, a.k.a. Dickie. Dickie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm the asshole that nicknamed him Dick throughout this, so every once in a while I'll throw in a good dick joke. Well, you know... You're welcome. Dick almost sounds better than Dickie. Yeah. There's something about it. Exactly. Dickie had just graduated from U of M at the young age of 17. Oh, wow. But it was 1924, so, I mean, probably. And he had planned to be in law school in the fall. Dickie was obsessed with the idea of, quote-unquote, the perfect crime. And his neighbor, who was a very intelligent young man, Nathan was a law student who was a believer in, okay, here it comes, Frederick, Frederick Nietzsche's, I'm going to go with that, N-I-E-T-Z-C-E-R-Z-S-C-H-E, Nietzsche, Nietzsche. I would sure. have to Google pronunciation on that one. But I will say Nietzsche's. Sorry, guys, if I'm wrong. 
concept of the Superman idea that it is possible to rise above good and evil. Lovely. The young guys didn't seem like they would be the type to be friends with each other as they were vastly different. Dick Loeb was charming, good looking, and had a cool manner. And then there was Nathan, who was an awkward looking guy who had a tendency to hide in his friend's shadow often. Despite their differences, the young men grew close and formed a close and powerful bond. See, the thing is, is that Nathan was in love with Richard. Oh. Oh, yeah. And he would do anything he wanted for sexual favors. <laughs> okay. Yep. Nathan would later go on to write, Loeb's friendship was necessary to me. Terribly necessary. And he would say that his motive for the murder was attributed to wanting to please Dick. <clears throat> There's a sex joke in there somewhere. I know it. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm like giggling and smirking. That's why I love a good dick joke. <laughs> Nathan and Richard created a plan to commit the perfect crime in which the idea of murder was not what attracted them to it, but the idea of being able to get away with murder, which had been inspired by their strange mix of nihilistic philosophy, detective fiction, and misguided love. On May 21st of 1924, Nathan and Dick, I have to, lured a 14-year-old Bobby Frank into their car. They then went on to murder him with a chisel, and stuff his body into a culvert. What the shit? A chisel? A chisel. What the fuck? Disturbing as hell. Yeah. The very next morning, as if this wasn't fucked up enough, the very next morning, the Frank family received a special delivery letter, which was a ransom note demanding $10,000 in unmarked bills for the return of Bobby. Oh my gosh. But, obviously, before Mr. Frank could even begin to pay the ransom, police ended up discovering the young boy's body. So it's not bad enough. They they say they just want to get away with murder. We're going to try and get some money out of it at the same time. Oh, yeah. They killed him. And then we're like, oh, yeah, for the return of your kid, give us $10,000. But we're not going to give him to you anyways because he's dead, motherfuckers. Like, yeah. what the fuck? We'll give him I back, can't. but he won't be alive. This this whole case, that's why I'm a little extra right now. This whole case makes me really mad. And, and towards the end, of, you'll hear my because <laughs> I'm a little frustrated. Oh. oh, yeah. Unfortunately, there was nothing linking the criminals to the crimes except for a single pair of glasses. Police ended up being able to trace the glasses to an optometrist in Chicago who had prescribed them to Nathan Leopold. If Nathan had not lost his glasses during the crime, him and Dick would have likely gotten away with the entire damn thing. You know, I'm I'm glad they failed in their attempt then. <laughs> like, very much You want to get away with it, and you fucked up, and I'm very glad. Oh yeah, thrilled, honestly. Of course... 
Nathan and Richard's parents hired the best and most expensive criminal attorney that they could find, Clarence Darrow. Now, Darrow knew that his clients would be convicted, and his one and only goal was to save them from the death penalty. Boo. Yeah. Americans read every detail of the trial with interest and repugnance. Criminal mobility was increasing with the increase of vehicles like the Model T, and citizens' fears of crime were on the rise, which would cause them to support a national police force. Chicago's radio station, WGN, actually considered broadcasting the trial live, but in the end, decided that it would be inappropriate (laughs) to show families in their living rooms. Which, yeah, that wouldn't be very appropriate, but now we see it everywhere. Yeah, it's all over TV. We see worse than trials now. Yeah. Thanks to the internet and television. Mm Mm-hmm. The trial ended up reaching its high when Clarence Darrow gave his closing argument, which was given over a 12-hour period and in a severely hot courtroom. Over 12 hours? That's what the article said. That would be absurd. I was confused. Like, I was like, is this closing argument like a whole 12 hours or was like the entire trial 12 hours? I don't know. But it was, like, weirdly worded yeah. in the article. So I was like, mm. Darrow admitted that his clients were guilty, but argued that there were forces beyond their control that influenced their actions. Right. Mm-hmm. Philip Johnson, a law professor, describes Darrow's argument as, nature made them do it, evolution made them do it, Nietzsche made them do it, so they should not be sentenced to death for it. Yeah, okay. Right. In the end, Darrow ended up convincing the judge to spare Nathan and Richard, and they were given life in prison instead. The next year, Clarence Darrow was involved in another quote-unquote trial of the century in which he defended a John Scopes for the teaching of evolution, which is in direct violation of a Tennessee law. Because, you know, the 1920s. And we're going back to that, because... There is no separation of church and state. Gotta laugh through the pain. I'm not. I'm not gonna go into any. Gotta laugh through the pain. This is not a political podcast. (laughs) Correct. WGN Radio ended up sending their microphones to Dayton, Tennessee, in this instance, and as it seems like a much better idea to cover a trial over ideas rather than broadcast a murder, which ideally. I mean, (laughs) but on January 28th, 1936, Richard Loeb was attacked by a fellow inmate named James Day with a straight razor in the shower room and died shortly after in the prison hospital with 58 wounds. Jeez. He, He went for it. Oh, yeah. James Day claimed that Richard had sexually assaulted him. But he was completely unharmed. While Richard had such an extreme number of wounds, including defensive wounds on his arms and hands, and his throat had been slashed from behind. Yeah. 
Well, it didn't mean that he sexually assaulted him at that moment. It could have been payback. Yeah, he was trying to claim uh, self-defense. Oh, no, that's... (laughs) That doesn't work. Not at all. But news reports suggested that Richard had propositioned James and authorities possibly embarrassed by alleged, quote-unquote, same-sex behavior in the prison ruled that James Day was defending himself because, you know, nothing worse than being gay, including murder. (laughs) At that time, yeah. Just apparently, murder is fine as as long as you're not gay. (laughs) Don't worry, I'm rolling my eyes, folks. For that, yeah, that time period, that's not surprising. Yeah. After Richard's death, Nathan became a model prisoner. I slow blink and made several significant contributions to improving the condition at state Stateville penitentiary, despite having depression. Do you hear it? (laughs) The world's tiniest violin for your depression, sir. You're in prison for murder. <laughs> I, have, I, have, I get madder and madder as we get towards the end of this. This included reorganizing the prison's library, revamping the schooling system and teaching its students, and volunteering in the prison hospital. In 1944, he volunteered for the Stateville Penitentiary Malaria Study. He was injected with malaria pathogens and then underwent other experimental malaria treatments. Later on, he wrote that all his work in prison after his his release was an effort to compensate for his crime. Hmm. And you heard that right. Sentenced to life, but after his release. Huh. Right. After almost 34 years and many unsuccessful petitions, Nathan Leopold was paroled. In March of 1958. Some life sentence that is, eh? Yeah. And of course, after his release, the Brethren Service Commission, which is a Christ of the Brethren affiliated program, accepted him as a medical technician at its hospital in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He voices his appreciation in an article stating... To me, the Brethren Service Commission offer the job, the home, and the sponsorship without which a man cannot be paroled. But it gave me so much more than that. The companionship, the acceptance, the love which would have been rendered a violation of parole almost impossible. Huh. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know how to feel about all this. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, Wikipedia, because I... Went off of two different places, an article and then also Wikipedia. And oh, they were laying it on thick. Just giving him his roses for doing this and doing that. That's why I got madder and madder and madder. (laughs) Years later, Nathan moved to San San Tercy and married a widowed florist. He gained a master's degree at the University of Puerto Rico and then taught classes there. 
Like, what in the actual fuck is all of this shit? <laughs> it's honestly pissed me off. The fucker should be in prison at this point, but he's teaching classes in Puerto Rico when he killed a man with a chisel. <laughs> the asshole then became a researcher. As you can tell, I'm very mad in my script. <laughs> I was very mad. I had some choice words. Um, the asshole became a researcher in the social service program of Puerto Rico's Department of Health, worked for an urban renewal and housing agency, and carried out studies on leprosy at the University of Puerto Rico School of Medicine. And then I say, okay, this shit goes on and on, and honestly, it makes me rage. Um, so I'm going to get to the end of this and say that on August 29th of 1971, at 66 years of age, Nathan Leopold died of a diabetes-related heart attack. The end. <laughs> um, I'm tired of people not getting the full sentence and then getting to go on and live a life where they're celebrated after doing heinous shit. Ugh. That's how I ended it. <laughs> so as we could tell, Stephanie was a little angry with this one. Yeah. They just... And I mean, they had sections... Of just going on and praising, like, oh, and he did this, and he got this, and he did this article, and he did this. And I'm like, I don't fucking care. Like, I don't. I don't know how to say it nicely. I really, I really don't. He was a terrible human who deserved to rot in prison, not live a lovely life in the end. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer. Bummer. Like, hey, but you need it, to, you needed to be miserable. What's happening here? But I guess it makes for an entertaining script where I go off the rails and rage. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh. I, I say I hope you haven't done this one already. I was trying to check the uh, our spreadsheet. To make sure this wasn't one that we've done. And I don't think it is. <laughs> but it was recommended by a listener. Also named Stephanie. I think it's been a while. Hi, Stephanie. <laughs> I went through the messages. This was like 2022, beginning of the year. Stephanie M. Oh, goodness. Recommended the case of Kevin Lloyd Arts. And... I didn't heard of this one before that I could I, remember, so. I don't remember doing it either, to be honest. Completely a wild case. And I'm kind of thankful whenever anybody goes to the Court of Appeals, because then I get like the full case background in one location <laughs> from a court document. So that makes this way easier, honestly. Well, thank you, Stephanie. We appreciate you. Yeah. I like a good case where I can just get all the information in one spot. Uh, so, and this this one was wild. I wasn't expecting this at all. On July 15th, 1999, Deputy Wayne Bizard was dispatched to Kip's Pizza and Taco Restaurant in Jackson, owned by Kevin Lloyd Arts and his wife Patricia. The restaurant had been closed for several days, prompting Patricia's family to be worried because she and Arts lived in an apartment attached to the restaurant. Patricia's family was worried because 
Kevin was recovering from brain surgery and Patricia had not spoken to or responded to messages from her family in two days. Before Deputy Bizarre arrived, several of Patricia's relatives went to the restaurant and knocked on doors and windows trying to get someone to respond. At some point, after making enough noise, Arts showed up outside and asked what they were doing there. Arts said that Patricia had taken their car and went to visit someone. However, Patricia's family knew Arts was lying because Patricia sold the car a day or two before. Oh, wow. So that was their hint. Something was seriously wrong at that point. Yeah. When Deputy Bizarre arrived, and I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, it's B-I-S-A-R-D. So, Bizarre. That's, that's my guess. So before he arrived, Art said the last time he saw Patricia was when she left in their car. Arts allowed Deputy Bizarre to take a quick look inside of the restaurant, and after looking, the deputy was convinced something was wrong. He left to talk with both his supervisor and Detective Thomas Fierro, but planned to return to the restaurant to meet with Arts. Deputy Bizarre and Detective Fierro arrived at the restaurant early for the meeting and saw Arts outside of the restaurant with a white box. Arts disappeared around the corner, and when Bizarre and Fierro caught up to him, he no longer had the box they saw. Of course he didn't. Yeah. Bizarre went through the restaurant and saw brown drippings, like watered blood from fresh meat, on newspapers by the oven and noticed a pan of cooked material in the kitchen sink with water running into it. Detective Fierro turned off the water and recognized the smell of burnt flesh. When the box was recovered from the porch of a neighboring vacant home, it contained charred bones that later were confirmed to belong to Patricia Arts. Oh, ick. And this is a restaurant kitchen. By the way, so this is the point where I want to do that, the TikTok song. You can't eat at everybody's house except. Oh, you can't eat at everybody's house, but restaurant edition. Yeah, the, re- the restaurant version of that. You can't eat at every restaurant because holy Absolutely. cow. According to the evidence and timeline established, Arts killed Patricia in the apartment possibly by blunt force trauma. He then placed her body in a sleeping bag and took her from the apartment to the restaurant. Arts then cleaned the living room of the apartment and washed the carpets and couch cushions. He also moved the furniture to cover spots on the carpet. Crime scene investigators conducted luminol tests that showed the presence of blood in the apartment, which was heaviest on the carpet near the couch. Patricia's DNA was found on the dining room table, on the tile in the apartment, on the restaurant floor, in the restaurant sinks, in the sleeping bag, and in Arts's fingernail scrapings. Evidence showed Arts dismembered Patricia's body, and then baked the bones and boiled or cooked the remainder. Holy shit. Right? That is just... And this is obviously, at trial, what does the defense go for? <laughs> Reason of insanity, yep. folks. They went for 500. <laughs> yep, they went for the mentally ill defense. 
and they claimed Arts was mentally insane and not responsible for his actions. But, you know, I think most of us would agree that even if you didn't mean to do something in the moment, you're still responsible for what you do. Like, that that doesn't excuse the action, especially when you're cutting up and cooking someone to dispose of the evidence. Ugh. It, it would be one thing if it was like, oh, yeah, I went insane. I, like, put her body somewhere. But to go through the process of dismembering and cooking and disposing of. I mean, it's gross and it's messed up, but <laughs> just I think Yikes to me, just that process of thinking your way through it, like how you're going to do stuff doesn't scream insanity to me, really. Like, not Mm -hmm. in the traditional insanity plea defense, where it's like, this person has no idea what they're doing. You had to think through steps. So. And how to dispose and where, like, just the whole process itself. Like, I'm going to put this in a box and then put it at a vacant house until I can dispose of it later kind of thing. Yeah. And prior to all of this happening... Arts was admitted to the hospital on June 29th, 1999, because he was suffering from a brain hemorrhage. He had surgery and was released from the hospital on July 2nd, 1999. After the surgery, Arts' mental health was described as widely varied from dazed, dopey, and childlike to communicative and conscious of what was occurring. Patricia was last seen on July 13th. During the trial, two experts for the defense testified that he was legally insane at the time of the murder. Neuropsychologist Edward Cook testified, Arts had an organic psychotic condition and because of his mental illness, lacked substantial capacity to appreciate the nature, quality, or wrongfulness of his conduct. Cook believed Arts was insane before and after his brain surgery and that he struck Patricia, believing she was the devil. That was But he went beyond that. He didn't just strike her. Yeah. Oh. It was like, you're the devil. I get rid of you. Like that, that argument doesn't line up or make sense. And the, the other person that testified, doctor of clinical psychology and board certified neuropsychologist Bradley Sewick, Sewick, testified that Arts's cerebral bleed was a deep, destructive, severe hemorrhagic stroke, which not only affected Arts's speech, but also affected his ability to think logically and rationally. Sewick said that because of the damage to his brain, Arts was in a confused, psychotic state at the time he killed Patricia, and that he suffered from delusions and hallucinations. Sewick basically said that because of the delirium, Arts didn't understand what he was doing was wrong. However, the prosecution presented evidence that went against the insanity defense. The neurosurgeon who performed Arts' surgery testified that Arts had a cerebral hematoma on the left temporal lobe of his brain, which controls speech and the clot was present in the brain for one or two days and was not acute. He also said no abnormality was found in the brain, but the cause of the hemorrhage was never determined. 
After surgery, Art suffered from aphasia, which is a loss of ability to understand or express speech caused by brain damage, and that he needed speech and occupational therapy, but there was no nerve damage to the brain, according to his surgeon. And the surgeon did acknowledge the existence of a some kind of a hospital note in his records saying Arts had a hallucination. However, he explained that the hallucination occurred within a day or two after surgery when Arts was intensely sick. It's noted that it's not an uncommon occurrence for a patient recovering from deep anesthesia. Forensic pathologist and neuropsychologist Joseph Galdi testified that there was no basis to conclude that Arts met the criteria for legal insanity. Galdi testified that problem solving and analytical functions are controlled by the front brain, which was not affected in Arts's case. He basically said that Arts's aphasia wouldn't have caused him to murder someone or lose his ability to understand what he was doing. It just affects speech. And Galdi's conclusion was that Arts wasn't suffering from delirium or a major depressive disorder even though Prozac was discontinued after surgery. The prosecution showed that other than the possibility that intoxicants were involved, Arts had no evidence of mental illness at the time he killed Patricia. Forensic psychologist Charles Clark believed that Arts was not truthful because he told inconsistent stories about Patricia's death. Finally, Moses, I'm going to butcher this last name, McKees, Muskies, M-U-Z-Q-U-I-Z, a cardiologist, testified that Arts's cerebral bleed was superficial and did not penetrate the brain. There were no vascular deformities after the surgery. No permanent ongoing brain damage was physically evident. So that, like, there's a lot of back and forth between the defense and the prosecution about the insanity plea, and I mean, you know how I how I feel about that one. Yeah, like you took steps, bro. You you thought this through. <laughs> I don't know and, if he was like, I own a restaurant, I cook, I cook the bones. Though that makes sense. <laughs> totally logical. But and can I just say too, pizza and taco restaurant they owned. I've never thought that kind of combination before. I thought that was weird. Mm-mm. Yeah, I absolutely would. Nope. No, you almost want to be like, maybe you should have used that for the insanity plea. Like, there's a record of him <laughs> doing weird shit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like pizza and tacos. All right. With all the evidence, the jury rejected Arts's defense that he was mentally insane at the time of the crime. Instead, on March 15th, 2001, Kevin Lloyd Arts was sentenced to homicide open murder for the murder of Patricia Arts and will serve life in prison. And he's currently being held in the Richard A. Handlin Correctional Facility as a level two inmate. Where he belongs yeah, in good. prison. Yeah. Some of this was from uh, Murderpedia. Otis, which is the offender tracking information system, and the good old site law.justia.com where you can look at a court of appeals 
information. Hey. Um, mine came from, you know, obviously Wikipedia, and then also from an article on PBS titled The Leopold and Loeb Trial. <laughs> I didn't know PBS would be talking about it, but yeah, mine came from those two in conjunction with each other. Yeah. So now that you've, like, you gave that information, I knew that lawyer's name sounded familiar, and I swear I've heard something with Leopold and Lowe before. It's kind of, like, tickling the back of my brain, but I can't really remember where I've heard it before. It's just all of this. I mean, I was a pre-law student for a semester, so. That's probably where. Probably. But also, like, that guy, he went, it makes me as frustrated as you because it's like you went through that whole process. You not only harmed somebody, you cut them up, you dispose of the body, you cook the body, you hid evidence, you tried to destroy evidence. There's no way, in my opinion... Yeah. It's a mental insanity plea. It's like, then you're yeah. constantly insane. Yeah. People that are insane don't believe they're insane. That's kind of how that goes. So, if you're, yeah. yeah. True. Yeah. It's messed up. We may say it's crazy, but you thought it through. You went through a process after it was over with. So, even if the initial act may have been, uh, a moment the the follow through shows it's not a a steady thing like exactly you have to always be insane not just in that time period yeah yay <laughs> <laughs> well thanks again stephanie for that because i definitely had not heard of that one before yeah stephanie thanks you stephanie <laughs> <As do I. laughs> uh. Well, thank you all for listening to today's episode. Be safe out there and watch out for the crazies. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. The music titled Teller of the Tales was provided by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incomtech.filmmusic.io.